Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the Tonight Show. Former Tishak Bertie Ahern shares his view on the Israel-Hamas conflict. You know, world peace has, has taken a, a big, big setback, and probably maybe even decades back in the last month, which is unbelievable. Plus, as the government proposes relief of €70,000 for flood-hit businesses, we debate if it's enough. And as big tech pulls out, Paddy Cosgrave steps down, we examine the future of the Web Summit. In some breaking news tonight, the Red Cross confirmed it facilitated the release of two hostages. Yoheve Livshitz and Nurid Yitza were released by Hamas. Their release has spurred on hopes that as many as 50 hostages could soon be released. Uh, joining me to react to this and the latest news on the conflict are TD Richard Boyd Barrett from People Before Profit, Irish Times columnist Michael O'Regan and Secretary General of the Irish Red Cross, Deirdre Garvey. Well, we'll be discussing that uh, latest on that hostage release shortly in the programme. But first, this year marked 25 years since the signing of the Good Friday Agreement, a document that helped put an end to 30 years of violence in Northern Ireland. Well, former Taoiseach Bertie Hearn was instrumental in getting that agreement signed and he's worked in dispute and conflict resolution around the globe. Well, earlier today, Kira Doherty sat down with him to talk about the Israel-Hamas conflict and what lessons can be learned from the Irish Troubles. Bertie Heron, thank you for agreeing to speak to us here on The Tonight Show. What is your assessment of the current conflict in Israel and Gaza? Well, it's so sad, I suppose, and it's just devastating what happened October 7th. Uh, was so tragic. And I mean, there seemed to be a lot of progress being made over the last year or two. Uh, October 7th changed all that, and everything that's happened since is just um, heaped more pressure on that. Um, my own feeling now is that this is going to play itself out, uh, as it has 12 times since 1948. Um, sometimes people forget how many times we've had, you know, the Middle East just firing into disaster. And but I, I think now we're into we're into uh, probably a prolonged conflict. Israel aren't going to pull back; they have right on their side this time. Um, but where does right stop? I mean, what, what's happening is, is, is horrendous and so sad because I, I suppose in every war it's the same thing here. It, it, it's um, the, the first thing that goes out the door in wars is the truth. Um, and the second thing is that innocent civilians are the ones who suffer most. Um, and in this case, there, there's no easy solution. How would you characterise Israel's response to what happened on October 7th. Which is totally predictable. Uh, you, you know what Israel are going to do. I mean, if Israel are hit, they will hit savagely back. If Israel are hit to the extent of losing 1,400, 1,500 people, it was going to be um, savage. And But, you know, world opinion this time, nobody is saying that they hadn't got a right uh, to hit back strong. 
it's, it's where, where that can ease up. Um, though my, my, my mind now, unfortunately, almost moves to where it goes almost at the end of this, this period. I mean, do Egypt, do Jordan help to get a ceasefire somewhere along the way? You know, uh, President Biden has obviously taken a very hands-on role in it. He's good credibility and fairness to him over long years in, in, in this region. Uh, America seemed best placed to be able to, to, to put the lid on it. But on the other side of it, in the end of the day, um, whether Hamas are beaten or not, you know, and, and I suppose everyone would love to see a group like Hamas out of the, out of the, the equation. Do you think it is possible to wipe out an organisation like Hamas? And do you believe they are a terrorist organisation? They, they are. I mean, look what they've been at for, for, for years. Um, but to answer your first question, do I think it's possible to wipe them out totally? I doubt it. Um, but certainly uh, there are people um, to try to, 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 to change things. I mean, I, I met groups in the mountains um, uh, back um, who, who are up and ready, I think, to try and find creative solutions. Um, whether that can be done with Benjamin Netanyahu and, 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 and his present government, not to mind his other governments, you know, Shinkeshtela, but, but, but I, I, I do think it, it's a, it, it is a conflict that won't go away. They just keep reincurring. And if people are horrified now, if they're horrified with what happened, Israeli people, if they're horrified by the response, um, uh, I think the, the real horror is not to find a, work to find a solution. You know, world, world peace has, has taken a, a big, big setback, and probably maybe even decades back in the last month, which is unbelievable. Then, listening to what you're saying, do you think Israel is justified in the response and the actions that they are currently taking? I, I, I wish there was another way, but you know, it, it's not a question. That, that, are, are, is it justified to go in and bomb, you know, homes where you know there's innocent civilians? And um, that's I don't think that's justified. Is, is, is it, is it uh, justified for an organisation to go in across our border and kill people in their beds, to kill children? You know, to kill people in a music concert, concert you know, to behead people. Is, is that justified? I mean, n none of this is justified. None of this is justifiable. But um, uh, Israel are a sovereign government, uh, and, and if a sovereign government sees its people attacked, um, they have a right to respond. Uh, I wish their response um, wasn't the way it always is. I mean, Israel only know one way of responding, and that's by huge force. And nobody in the world knows that better than Hamas. I mean, they, they and so and Hezbollah are the same. I mean, they, they know exactly mm. uh, and would have calculated in their day of madness of what, what Israel would do. I mean, am I surprised what Israel have done? No, I'm not. President Higgins said that Israel were breaching international law in their response. Was he right to say that? Well, I think, you know, my view on these things that, you know, in, international law uh, is that you should use proper means of force um, and that you, you shouldn't risk civilians. So if you're saying you're risking civilians' lives, well, you know, then that's breaking international law. But if the organisation you're fighting, which has a reputation for you, launching rockets from community centres in the middle of where people are living, 
you know, what, what, what are Israel going to do? I mean, it's like everything, there's two sides at the coin. Uh, Israel's ambassador was speaking to the Sunday Independent yesterday. Uh, she said that the president's comments were inflammatory. Do you agree? Be, to be honest, I think anyone making too many comments about these things only, only throws fire on fire. Um, I think the president was upset about Ursula von der Leyen making a statement which I think I know where she made it because she was trying to get the EU to be maybe a more balanced position in that. He said she was reckless. I wouldn't say she was reckless. I, 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 she could have answered in a, in, in, in a line or two. You have to keep it balanced. Uh, you know, we, we've always been very sympathetic to the Palestinian people in this country. Um, Israel are annoyed at us most of the time. Uh, I've always, over a long political career, tried to keep good relations with Israelis ambassadors here and at the same time keep good interest with the Palestinians. Arafat came to see me I think four times during my, my, my times here and all the time we were urging peace and peace and peace. Like in, in conflicts, you know, cool heads is, is the most important thing. Um, inflammatory statements on either side, uh, people getting up on the stool on either side. Uh, in, in the end of the day, it's, it's solutions, it's to try and find solutions. And if, if you're not in a position to stop what's happening, which none of us are um, at the present, then we should be thinking to the future. So if you were president, you wouldn't be making comments like that? If, if I don't want to get into that because it is well known that the president is very passionate uh, about what goes on in conflicts, whether it's the Middle East or Nicaragua or anywhere else. And, and that, that is, is the man, so I would not criticise him for that. What I'm saying is that um, collectively, we've had numerous people in numerous countries now making statements. I, I'm not sure the sum total of that gets us anywhere. You say we've always been sympathetic to Palestine in this country, and the Israeli ambassador yesterday in the Sunday Independent said, we see ourselves as a neutral country, but when it comes to this conflict, we are not neutral. There's an unconscious bias here. Do you agree? I have... Um, uh, very good friends who, who, who see um, th this conflict over the years, not just this, this particular one, very much through the, 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 the eyes of Israel. Uh, they say they're sovereign government, they, you know, they had all the past, they had their own history, and they're, they're being hit by, by terror and they have a right to respond. On the other side of it, I think we see in this country that Gaza is, I've been in it, I've been through it, I've been through the camps, I've already eight camps. Uh, and you see that people are living on top of each other. I mean, they are living literally on top of each other. Uh, you go into some of those camps and you see the, the kind of medical facilities they have and community facilities. It, 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 is, it is appalling. And this is when there's no conflict. I wasn't there when there was bombs falling. Um, though most of the places I stayed in, including Arafat's house, including the airport that the Air Corps drove me into, including the schools I opened, including the community centres I opened, have all been bombed. Every one of them. Not in this conflict, in previous conflicts. The bed that I slept in for, at Arafat's home for three or four nights was bombed to pieces many times ago. So, so I'm aware of that. But I, I think if you're going to have a value, uh, and this is where our neutrality comes in, if you're neutral, and we've done this successfully over many, many decades, it is trying to take uh, in the round um, where we can try to help in conflict. Um, I spend most of my life now in conflict resolution issues. And if you take a one-sided view, then you're not going to be part of the solution. 
And, and, so we are a neutral state. We are. Is that because of our own experience with the conflict in Northern Ireland? Yeah. Do you draw parallels there between both conflicts and do you think lessons can be learned from the conflict and the peace that was achieved in Northern well, Ireland? Well, no two conflicts are the same, and but there are always lessons. I mean, there are always things that are that are that can be applied. And one of those that in the Middle East, which is, is, is always a worry, that uh, in, in the Middle East or in any conflict, if the parties who are engaged in conflict, whether they're terrorist groups, whether they're freedom fighters, whether they're people fighting for their territory, whatever they are, and on the other side you have sovereign governments and, and um, legitimate governments, um, if both sides are happy enough with the status quo, nobody can help them. Nobody can help them, and that's my worry in the Middle East. From your own experience with conflict resolution, in particular the experience in Northern Ireland, what learnings can you bring to the situation here? I, I, I think that no matter how bad things are, um, I, I remember, if I can give this example, because it's a, it's a good week, but a sad week to, to give this example. Um, people of a certain age will recall um, when the bomb went off in the butcher shop. Uh, and the reaction to that, uh, and to Jerry Adam being one of the pallbearers of the coffin, people said, oh, that's it, we'll never get anywhere. At that time, that was October 93, but within six weeks of that, we had the Down the Street Declaration, which 15th of December 1993, which was the trigger for the first ceasefires of August and October mm. of 94. So even in the darkest days, if there are people working and sincerely working, you can work in, into solutions. So you, you, you never can give up. Uh, otherwise, you just walk away. Bertie O'Hearn, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, People Before Profit TD, Richard Boyd Barrett, Irish Times columnist Michael O'Regan and Secretary General of the Irish Red Cross, Deirdre Garvey, are still with me in studio to react to that interview. And also the news tonight that the Red Cross has secured the release of two hostages um, from Hamas in negotiations. Uh, Deirdre, do you understand that your uh, affiliate organisation in Gaza would have um, been party to? Tell us about how that was all secured well, what I can say is that the International Committee of the Red Cross, the ICRC, is a neutral and partial organisation and is very able, ready and willing to assist in providing humanitarian um, care and supplies uh, when enabled to do so. Uh, we are a neutral, uh, independent. That Red Cross is a very important legally protected symbol. Uh, and it protects the people who wear it going into very dangerous situations. And so we've seen that the Egyptian Red Crescent and the Palestinian Red Crescent were the vehicles that were chosen to bring the little aid that has been going in in recent days. Uh, and we have also seen that the internet ICRC has had a really important role, trusted by all parties, to help with the transport of those, uh, the four now hostages that have been released. Um, and they are ready and willing to be involved in whatever way they can uh, in their, I guess, their neutral, independent, impartial way. They don't have access as such to, to the hostages, even though, you know, that's something that you would say is in the, the remit of, of Red Crescent to be able to access um, who may be dubbed prisoners of war on, on both sides. Well, it is under international humanitarian law a very uh, fundamental role for the international uh, 
Committee of the Red Cross to visit detainees uh, involved in a, in a conflict and to look for their welfare and well-being. Uh, and that is part of what it happens if, when there's an international armed conflict or hostilities. And that is their role. Uh, and, and I guess sometimes it's easier to enact that than others. Um, but in terms of the actual precise details of what the ICRC uh, has and has access to, that would not be party uh, the information that I would certainly be party to. OK, um, let's talk a little bit more about um, this conflict as a whole, Richard Boyd Barrett, and what we heard from former Taoiseach Bertie O'Hearn there um, with his take on it. Uh, what do you make of his assessment that all of this was totally predictable? If Israel are hit, they will hit savagely back. I mean, I think it's just the whole narrative is, is sort of upside down. Um, I mean, the implication of all this is that the t terrible escalation of violence that we've seen in the last few weeks started on October the 7th. It didn't. Uh, there are six to 7,000 Palestinians have been killed in the last few years. There, are, there was, before this started, 5,000 Palestinian hostages who are still in prison, most of them without mm -hmm. trial or charge, in the system called administrative detention. And there was a 17-year-long siege imposed on Gaza, which is a violation of international law, which has reduced Gaza to a state of permanent humanitarian crisis, uh, where Israel doesn't let people in or out for the most part. Um, so as you know, Gideon Levy, the Haaretz columnist, Jewish uh, and Israeli columnist, put it, how do you expect to treat Palestinians like this and not end up thinking there's going to be a price to be paid? that at some point they're going to hit back. So uh, I, I think that uh, unless we get to the root cause of that problem, if we want to end this cycle of violence, the siege of Gaza has to be lifted fully. And the issues of apartheid, of the illegal occupation of Palestinian territory, settlers, mm ethnic cleansing of Palestinians have to stop. Otherwise, this violence is going to continue. And that assertion that we heard from Bertie Hearn and we've heard from others, that uh, when he talks about Israel, they only know one way of responding, and that's by brute force. And nobody knows that in the world more than Hamas does. And they would have calculated what Israel would do in response. <laughs> well, I think it, it, arguably you could also put it the, uh, the argument the other way around. Uh, in other words, I mean... You know, and this is very important for people to know. Benjamin Netanyahu went before the United Nations in September of this year, showing a map of Israel-Palestine, which had eliminated Gaza and the West Bank. Right. So his government had openly declared their intention to ethnically cleanse and, if you like, uh, finalize and fully finalize the complete uh, absorption of all Palestinian territory into Israel. He publicly did that. And, and his that, government... That, that was the precursor to... to, I, I, to I think Israel, Israel wants to do the plan that they have implemented now over the last few days to ethnically cleanse a million Palestinians from the north of Gaza. I think that this is a plan that was premeditated. It didn't come out of the, uh, the blue in the All last right. couple of weeks. And the senior ministers in Netanyahu's government have said very publicly that's what they intend okay. to do. So they, this is the context. Yeah, it's interesting as well that Bertie Ahern mentioned that much progress has been made in, in the region in the last 12 months and a lot of people would dispute that, Michael, that, you know, there, there was not much progress made towards any sort of peace there. Um, also saying there are two sides of the coin. Has our own history informed our view on this issue in the country, do you think? Well, I think it has. And I mean, instinctively, 
we would be pro-Palestine, because given our own history. Uh, but of course, it's not as simple as that. And Bertie Hearn is right. From uh, the ha Hamas attack meant Israel would respond. Now, there was, it's pretty horrific, but, uh, you know, what they're up to. They've shown scant disregard for, uh, uh, you know, the international rule of law. But this, this was inevitable. Uh, he did make the interesting point, actually, about... I suppose there's inevitability, as you call it, versus justification. Oh, uh, uh, they, were, they were justified in responding. Uh, they were going to respond and justified in responding, but not the way they have responded. Mm -hmm. Now, while it was inevitable, no, the scale of it, certainly not justified. The interesting thing here, though, now is uh, the immediate requirement, of course, is for a ceasefire so that humanitarian aid can get into Gaza. But interestingly tonight, President Biden is saying no ceasefire mm -hmm. until all the hostages are released. There may be... A w what the EU ministers were saying today is interesting. They were using the phrase, a humanitarian pause to allow uh, uh, aid in. Now, maybe there's a window of opportunity there. Fudging but Bertie the issue, did make but... an interesting point there about 30 years ago. Today, the anniversary of a terrible atrocity in the North. Yet, in uh, that was 1993. In 1994, you had a ceasefire. Uh, I, I, and, you know, it does probably feels in the region very, very far off from any sort of, of, of peace in the region, um, Deirdre, like on the very immediate need for humanitarian aid. Uh, can you bring us up to date on the aid mission? Because we've heard from, from others in the region, what is getting through is a drop in the ocean in terms of what's needed. Mm. Well, what we have seen is what's getting through is about 3% of what would have gone through um, in, I guess, the pre, uh, the most recent hostilities, right? So we are told that about 400 trucks would have gone into Gaza with all sorts of supplies. So on average, there would have been about 100 trucks a day going with humanitarian aid. And we've now got 20 trucks plus, I think, another 15 over the past five days, and four days since Saturday. So, so there's a drop in the ocean. now than there were, you know, pre, I suppose... Well, I mean, there's been an almost blockade this, for, for two weeks. And what we are situation. calling for is a pause in the hostilities so that the, the, the sufficient amount of humanitarian uh, trucks can go through and, and supply. And critically, that need for fuel. Fuel is what is the power. There is absolutely... Gaza is suffering a complete electricity blackout. They are surviving on generators and therefore the fuel is running out. It is medical supplies, it is food, it is fuel um, and it is water and it mm -hmm. is medicine. These are the things that are in urgent need uh, in all parts of Gaza and then when they come in, and this is why we need the pause, uh, we need the pause to distribute the humanitarian aid to where it is needed because that's what's happening. There's an ongoing, uh, I guess, uh, hostilities and that makes uh, the lives of the humanitarians. And we've heard about the 29 deaths of the United Nations Agency, the Palestinian Red Crescent. We've lost four colleagues and indeed the Israeli equivalent. We've lost mm. two colleagues in the equivalent of the Israeli uh, Red Crescent Society, it's Red a real, Diamond Society. Yeah, and it's a real difficulty, isn't it, Richard, when you're talking about humanitarian aid, but there's no humanitarian pause in war to allow this aid through? On a very practical uh, basis, there, there, is there any point in aid if it can't find its way to the right place? Well, of course. I mean, we need aid to get in. People are starving. They've nothing. They've no medicine. They've and, no food. And, and I mean a safe path for it to get, oh, to, to, get to, listen, to devastated areas. Israel have made it absolutely clear. They want to punish the entire population of Gaza. They, they, they're... 
generals have described the Palestinians as animals. They are bombarded. I mean, the, the, the destruction they are wreck, wrecking on Gaza, they don't care about the consequences for human beings. And I just think the world has to wake up as they look at what we're witnessing to realise Israel is not a normal state. Mm. It keeps doing this to the Palestinians year after year after year. Uh, and yet we have the United States backing them up to the hills, Ursula von der Leyen backing them to Rishi uh, Sunak, the backing them. Yeah, and not on the issue. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Of Ursula von der Leyen and it comes into this in, in what Bertie Hearn was saying about the Israeli ambassador, Daniel Ehrlich's reaction to Michael D. Higgins' um, comments about Ursula von der Leyen, saying it's a time for cool heads and inflammatory statements on either side are not helpful. I'm not entirely clear if he was saying it was an inflammatory statement by Michael D. Higgins, as was uh, as, as the Israeli ambassador accused him of. Uh, was it right for the Israeli ambassador to step in with her own comments on what Michael D. Higgins had to say? I think it was inevitable, and I got the impression from Bertie Hearn there that there's no great support from him for the president on this. The president is above politics, irrespective of the merit of what he's had to say on this. He is the president of the days above politics. Bear in mind, you, what's happened now is you have a row between the president and yeah. an ambassador. But is there not, I mean, can you not, is there not a place for a, for a moral stance in speaking out on this? I mean, Michael D. Higgins, and it, it was alluded to, it's well known, he's passionate. He's not going to say nothing. Yes, but he's president he? of Ireland, Claire. And uh, above politics, I mean, two of the functions, the only real functions the president has is to, he can refuse a dissolution of the Dáil. He can refer a bill to the okay. Supreme Court. Now, if you're getting involved in politics... Okay. Uh, including influencing uh, uh, foreign affairs issues, you know, where's your objectivity? Right. If Michael D. Higgins was saying something different on the matter, um, Richard, would you, would you take aim on it? If he was, if he was uh, I don't know, saying Ursula von der Leyen didn't go far enough in showing solidarity with Israel on this one? No, I just argue against his point of view. Uh, but I, I, I'm not sorry, <laughs> just to be straight. I mean, given the slaughter that is being visited on Palestinians at the moment, the fact that the president would feel morally bound to speak out about that... Fair play to him is all I can say. Um, but, uh, you know, to be honest, I think it's not just about him. It's we're going to, in my view, we have to put a lot of pressure on our own government to do more than it's done because all it's done is expressed concern about the plight of the Palestinians, but it's taken no action. I think they should expel the Israeli ambassador okay. from this country and impose sanctions on Israel for the crimes it's committing against Palestinians. Right. We're going to have to leave that conversation there for now, but my thanks to Michael O'Regan. And coming up after the break, as many businesses in Middleton uh, fear they will not open before Christmas, we ask... 
Is the government doing enough? Do stay with us. Welcome back. As many across the country continue to suffer from the effects of last week's flooding, particularly in the area of East Cork, the government has proposed a relief of up to €70,000 per impacted business. But as stores and restaurants fear they will not open their doors before Christmas, is this enough? Well, earlier I spoke with the owner of Selena's Bistro Middleton, Abdullah Al-Shamazne, and I started by asking him how the flooding affected his restaurant. Uh, first of all, good evening, Claire, and thanks for having me here uh, in your show. Uh, it, the floods wasn't ex wasn't expecting uh, the flood to be that bad. Uh, the new business, which is uh, was just opened on the 3rd of August, is uh, badly damaged. Uh, so uh, we're trying to put it back together. So tomorrow, hopefully, the maintenance guy will come and check all the equipments and hopefully we'll be back in the next few days. Uh, Salinas is the front and the back, and whatever I have stuck in the back is gone. Uh, the lift is broken. Uh, as well, uh, my car is uh, being moved with the flood for at least 30, 35 meters. This is how much the water was strong, to be honest. Uh, what are you... Just, Abdullah, if you could tell us what you're expecting in terms of government aid relief and financial help now as you try to get fully back on your feet. Well, uh, we're waiting to hear the announcement tomorrow uh, and uh, hopefully uh, there'll be something. Uh, action is actually louder than words. Uh, so hopefully there'll be something to help, not my business. Other businesses here were all... Uh, uh, absolutely devastating and suffering. Uh, plus, we need the people, we need our staff to be back to work so we can, they can provide for their families as well we can provide for our families. Uh, hopefully, hopefully, uh, as we say, uh, the government will give us a good uh, support. Uh, so as well, everyone is waiting to hear the announcement for tomorrow. Uh, look. There's a lot of things the government they can help us with. Uh, we're still paying our bills. We're still paying rate. We're still paying rent. We're still paying electricity, gas, uh, as well. They are absolutely expensive uh, comparing to what we're paying before. Uh, again, businesses suffer enough uh, between COVID, between uh, the prices, the food prices, the, as well the bills. All of them is just a hit after a hit after a hit. Like it's too much. All right. Uh, I don't think I don't I don't know how much businesses they can take anymore. We are hearing uh, reports that around an estimate of seventy thousand euro that businesses may get seventy thousand euro in order to help, um, you know, restore them and, and get people back up and running again. Is that the sort of money that you would require if you put a cost estimate on your losses that you've incurred? My new business, I spend good money in it. So between between the two businesses, I think, look, we don't know. It might have put us up to on our feet, to be honest. So not me. There's a lot of businesses, and I hear today there's two businesses that won't be operating again in Middleton, which is a huge loss for the town. So look, seventy thousand. I don't know. 
uh, it might be enough for small businesses. It might not be enough for big businesses, to be honest, a lot, or large businesses, let me say. All right. Abdullah Al-Shamazne, owner of Selena's Bistro in Middleton, thank you for joining us on the programme tonight and tell us and, telling us about for me, guys. your thank situation. You. Thank you, Abdullah. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, joining me now with the latest on relief aid and wider planning issues is People Before Profits, Richard Boyd Barrett, Fianna Fáil TD, James O'Connor, uh, Secretary General of the Irish Red Cross, Deirdre Garvey, is still with us. And we're also joined tonight by planning consultant Tom Phillips. You're very welcome along to the programme. Uh, James O'Connor, I want to come to you first. Um, we heard from the Enterprise Minister, Simon Coveney, saying today that the current aid scheme is not appropriate or fit for purpose. We heard that estimate at €70,000 up to up to that amount being on offer for businesses, can can you confirm that 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 is the figure that government that will be presented to cabinet tomorrow? From the outset, we have not received any clarification on whether that figure is going to be what's going to be released tomorrow. We are all awaiting uh, the outcome of tomorrow's cabinet meeting. So just to say that cabinet will convene at 10 a.m. tomorrow morning, um, we would hope that we'd have very clear details on a scheme. Um, you know, the figure of seventy thousand euros uh, would be very welcome. But what's most important is that it needs to be released rapidly. Uh, we've met, met people today, GPs, business owners mm. across East Cork, uh, outside of Middleton and in Middleton, uh, that have been very badly affected. And they're asking uh, that this would be delivered as a matter of urgency uh, and uh, to enable them to get back up and running again. And that's something that everybody wants to, to do. You did suggest the overall cost uh, of the relief fund could exceed €100 million. Euro. And Simon Coveney said earlier he wasn't sure where you got that figure from. So the figures uh, around the damage that has been done, um, you know, it's very hard to get a full estimate. But when you look at what has been destroyed... So that's an estimate. The 100, 100 million euro is just an estimate of a business count on, uh, on your part and what they may be able to avail of, is it? Well, the estimates at this point in time, it is too early because we met people today that were still awaiting assessors to arrive. Um, you know, we've a hospital destroyed, a guard station destroyed, critical community infrastructure, businesses, and it's, it's affecting other places Mogili, Ladies Bridge, my home village of Killa, where flooding has never occurred over 200 years of history. Um, so there's been businesses and homes right across East Cork that have been very heavily impacted. And indeed, in my uh, Deputy O'Sullivan's constituency in Glanmire, uh, which saw very heavy flood damage as well. So we need to see uh, ongoing support that's going to be able to support you know, the, the, the public infrastructure as well as homes and business, own right. bis business owners as well. Okay. Um Deirdre, has, has Red Cross at this point assessed um, the damage and the needs of affected businesses, um, uh, you know, by the floods? We heard from Abdullah mm. earlier on. Have you had people go down, see, see what's, what, what is required and, and how much they will need to, to, to get themselves back up and running and to repair all the costs that have been incurred by these floods? Well, first of all, I'd like to say, uh, express sympathy and solidarity with all those affected because this is a, an extraordinarily traumatic event. We have volunteers all over the country and we had Red Cross volunteers on the ground last Wednesday and indeed Thursday providing support for those stranded outside their homes and enabling the uh, HSE to transport patients from place to place. So we have a very local presence down there. The scheme, the small business scheme that we administer that we're talking about is a scheme that we are awaiting the finalisation, as James said, of the details from government. And as soon as that happens, uh, a form will go live on our website and it is for every business 
to just simply download that form. It's very basic. It's a they very simple form. They can get the money quickly and is what you're saying, And as soon as they Deirdre. submit that to us and the local authority who knows them just verifies that that is a real legitimate business and not a figment of somebody's imagination, we will pay that first payment immediately, right? The larger payment, and again, these numbers are up for grabs now, the larger payment is subject to an assessor. We have an assessor panel ready and waiting to go. But again, we are waiting for the get-go. Would you expect the threshold, that €70,000 figure that's being put out tonight, is that more like what's what's required here? I think we're all uh, a little bit in the dark now because the scheme is for those who, through no fault of their own, were unable to get flood insurance. Uh, Some people, many businesses are insured. Uh, Many businesses have partial insurance but not flood. So we are unfortunately a little bit in the dark still and I think the local authorities and and yourself we we are assessing this as the days go by and as soon as the scheme gets clarified that will be the hard and fast way for us to actually figure out the scale of what we're dealing with here and what I can say is that it will be speedily administered by the Irish Red Cross because we have done this many times before and we are used to it. Yeah and done it many times before and many would say Tom Phillips that they may be doing it many times again when we talk about climate change and how that is going to impact us here in this country, which brings us to the wider issue, I guess, of planning for flood relief schemes, but also where we where we build things in this country. From your perspective, do you think we're leaving ourselves in a very vulnerable position here in Ireland? Well, every country is, and we are. And I suppose when we say we, it's, it's, it's society in general, and it's people, a lot of people objecting to schemes on design grounds when it's a much bigger crisis. We have a planning, we have a crisis of climate and we have to expedite those decisions because the Planning Appeals Board and the, and the courts have been blocked up by people arguing over otters or badgers and other issues, which are important, but we've got people flooding and livelihoods and lives affected by this. And sometimes the greater good isn't served by p- giving people a lot of rights to object to everything. And we have to maybe look at hard at us and say, what, what are the priorities for infrastructure in this country. In Australia, for example, they've got the top 100 priorities. In Ireland, we've got everything is a priority and everything's not a priority. So flooding is definitely a priority. It's as important as housing because you have to have flood relief systems in place. And when they do go in place, they usually work. And then often what happens is when someone comes up with an idea, the first thing is that someone sets up an opposition and opposed to it on some ground of design or something else. But it's a crisis and we need to deal with it. Right or wrong on that one, uh, opposing flood relief schemes and holding up the planning process, Richard? I find it a slightly odd argument. Of course we need flood relief schemes and they should have been put in place and more effort and uh, investment uh, from the government should go into them. But to be honest, when you think about that, the fact that flooding is becoming more and more of a problem, that's precisely why we should say we need proper, sustainable planning and we shouldn't be wrecking our environment because that's what leads to the flooding or is significantly worsening the flooding. So actually, we need real environmental scrutiny of planning. And so I I don't agree with this idea that people should have less opportunity to seriously scrutinise the impact of any kind of development on the environment. Uh, so the point being made there, I suppose, the that people, I are just bi- say, people are building things in the wrong places to begin with. Well, absolutely, building Before, on flood. Aside from flood relief schemes being in place then for vulnerable areas, that they shouldn't actually be building on the areas in the first place. Absolutely. Tom, Build- do you want to come well, in? Yeah, well, they don't. I mean, the, 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 there's very good guidelines that the OPW brought out in 2009. And, they, and the, the word avoid actually is in it 31 times. It's an 81-page document and 31 times I mentioned avoid. 
and it talks about flood zones A, B and C, and you shouldn't build in zone A, you can possibly build in zone B, and, you, and you can, zone C is a different matter. So there, there are already very good guidelines in place, but a lot of the arguments are not about the rights of people to object. There are actually people arguing over whether Umbor Panola had the right to do an environmental impact assessment or the local authority had a right. It's really, at the end of the day, it's really irrelevant to me, that kind of how many angels can fit in the head of a pain arguments about planning when you've got people's livelihoods are flooded and we should be getting on and building these things. We've got the OPW, are a very right. good state organisation. And just on, on the first it. place, because we do hear this from an environmental point of view, you have rivers straightened out where there's a natural bend in the river and you have, you do have, you know, housing estates built on floodplains. That happens, doesn't it? Very rarely these days. I mean, they, 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 does, and the problem is, you see, with flooding, the, the flooding's been around since Noah. The, the flooding happens. And if you, sometimes when you build schemes, that scheme itself is fine, but it causes displacement elsewhere. Right. And there's a lot of issues. It can be just from rain, it can be from the sea, it can be from rivers. There are a lot of different factors. It's not a simple matter of that. All right, OK. Well, I, 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 I just say, no, but I would just say that it, it, the point is that if you don't have proper planning and it's seriously looking at the environmental impact, and there has been a lot of building on floodplains where it shouldn't have happened, then you are more likely to get these problems. The other thing I just wanted to say, though, is about the insurance issue. You see, we, we should have... There's huge numbers of people affected by this kind of thing and other things that can't get insurance, right? And because private insurance companies don't want to give them insurance. Now, I, we've What's been... What's the our, solution? A state insurance company, which they have, by the way, in a lot of places. They developed one in Canada there a few years ago. We used to have one, by the way, where the, the state will actually provide insurance to people who are not getting insurance at the okay. moment at is, affordable is levels. Is there a point to that, James, that, you know, you've got, you're talking about, you know, 100 million euro needed to be spent to, to, to compensate, you know, homeowners and businesses, but that actually, that the you know, insurance really should be able to help these people out. Certainly, and you know, as a, as a first-time TD and somebody that was recently elected, the damage and the destruction um, that's affecting my area and my constituency uh, and people around where I live is enormous. A state, a state insurance uh, company, as Richard is suggesting there? Yeah, there's a couple of solu solutions, you know, things like levies and other things could be looked at as well. But, you know, the point being is that if this is going to become more common, you know, a word of caution and danger to other political representatives and indeed those at Cabinet, get ready for this because what we've seen... Sorry, when you say levies, been... you mean premiums, uh, that people would, would pay a premium uh, countrywide, nationally, to, to cover for people who can't yes, get flooded. Yes, because insurance. as I said here tonight, there's been areas of my constituency that are underwater that it has never happened before. So this type of weather event is something that is going to do enormous damage in other locations of the country. And when it arrives at your doorstep, we need to be ready. We need to see also, I think it's important to make this point, for those households that are affected, they will need that ongoing support. Mm. I'd like to see the establishment of an emergency support centre. So those that want to avail of the, 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 the relief fund that's coming from the Red Cross, have somewhere to drop right. in, talk to Social Protection, talk to Cork County Council. And those ground supports are going to be very important. In the, as well in the for businesses as well. All we right. need to see that from the Department of Enterprise and, and Jobs as well. So that, that'll be welcome. All right. OK, we're going to leave it there. We will uh, hear about what uh, is presented at Cabinet tomorrow. But for now, we leave it there. My thanks to all my panel, uh, Richard Boy Barrett, uh, uh, sorry, also uh, Deirdre Garvey, James O'Connor and Tom Phillips. Now, coming up, we've the latest on former Web Summit CEO Paddy Gov's Cosgrave's decision to step down. Stay with us. Welcome back in a sensational turn of events. The outspoken Irish CEO of the Web Summit, Paddy Cosgrave, resigned from his position after comments he made on the Israel-Hamas conflict. 
caused controversy online. A number of high-profile tech companies withdrew following the remarks. Joining me with the latest on this is tech editor of the Irish Independent, Adrian Weckler. Adrian, you're welcome to the programme. Essentially, I suppose, how did it come to this? Paddy Cosgrave has now resigned as CEO from the Web Summit and they will be trying to secure guests and put on a a programme of events in Lisbon. But all of this really uh, blew up in recent days, didn't, didn't it, leading to this departure? Would it have been expected? The departure of Paddy Cosgrave. I'm very surprised that Paddy Cosgrave stepped down. Uh, many of us thought that he would stay in situ and try to reverse the situation. This is basically his company. He owns over 80% of the company. But it became very clear, given the scale and the depth of the companies and the constituency that was starting to boycott Web Summit wholesale, that he had absolutely no choice. The the thing about Web Summit and Paddy Cosgrave is they're both joined at the hip. When people think of Web Summit, they often think of Paddy Cosgrave and vice versa. And that's not just in Ireland, that is in other countries as well. His personal network, to be fair to him, his energy has built an awful lot uh, of the Web Summit. So when he takes a position, a public position, which alienates in so deep a way a constituency and as core a constituency to the tech industry as the venture capital community, the Israeli tech community, the startup community, and their influence on multinational companies. Many of the top executives in Meta, in Google, in Amazon, in Intel, Intel particularly Intel, would have deep connections in Israel and the Israel tech ecosystem. There was no coming back from that. Do you think there's a bigger question on what it says about corporate America in that, you know, someone who is now, like he's been controversial, obviously, in the statements Mm. in the past on other matters, but on this particular matter, which is not unaligned with what the UN is saying about what's happening um, when he said, you know, we we must recognise when our allies commit war crimes. Yeah. Um, What that says about corporate corporate America choosing to step back when he says that. I mean, well, I mean, there are two clear lessons from this. First of all, that America, forget corporate America, political America, business America, uh, technology uh, America, is very, very different from the position that uh, Leo Varadkar might have, that Michael T. Higgins might have. It is very pro-Israel. There is a very, a much deeper sympathy in the US in general towards uh, that position. Um, But also, um, it it says that corporate America, as you say, they will will not hesitate to boycott event, to step back from something if they think it does any damage to their Mm -hmm. brand. Uh, For their part, the Web Summit has said that it is going ahead. We're looking forward to welcoming up to Mm -hmm. 70,000 people in Lisbon with the full programme. And they have a record number of startups coming to Lisbon and 300 partners coming and the build-up has begun very much, I suppose, defending how they're progressing with this particular um, event. What about the next big event? Because that's in Qatar. Does that pose another political problem? It's absolutely fascinating because one of the big jobs for the Web Summit is to try and get some of the biggest sponsors and partners back on board. So Amazon and Amazon Web Services would be a classic example, which up until a couple of days ago was still listed uh, on the Web Summit's Qatar website as being a global partner. Now, if the issue is the conflict and the situation in Gaza and Israel at the moment, Qatar is not completely separate from that. You know, if you talk to somebody in the Israeli um, tech community, they will have their views on Qatar's position uh, and, and where it stands in relation to mm-hmm. that conflict. 
Now the Web Summit's next big conference is in Qatar, and it is trying to get many of those big organizations, which boycotted because of an anti-Israeli position, back to the Web Summit Qatar. It's quite a difficult ask. I'm not saying they won't do it. And I do think that that conference will go ahead. I I definitely think the Lisbon conference will go ahead. And it doesn't really, it's too early yet to say that this is the end of the Web Summit. Uh, and briefly, what about Paddy Cosgrave himself? Yeah. He is stepping aside as CEO. Can, can he make a comeback in some way? And, and can it possibly ever be affiliated with the, the Web Summit again, even though he has invested obviously heavily it's, in it? It's absolutely impossible to say. It's very difficult to see him coming back as CEO. There's some speculation that if the boycott deepens, if the antipathy toward Web Summit as a brand continues, and if they don't shake this anti-Israeli um, brand that they've developed in the last week, he may have to sell a a, a considerable interest in the company. All right, there we leave it. Adrian Weckler, thank you for bringing us up to date on that story today. That is it from us. Uh, Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. You can find us on Instagram and on TikTok. But from all the late team here, good night and do take care.